0: Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7, this is God's Word. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to Washer's Field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised all evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people and the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be as deep, sorry, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you must, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks on all the thorn bushes and on the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also." In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, and for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Let's pray. And Lord, we humble ourselves before your word. It's big and brilliant and wonderful for you are great and mighty, and we are small And we ask that you would speak and that we would hear. For Christ's sake, amen. As I mentioned in the announcements, this is a special season for this church, certainly the life of this church. As to the best of my knowledge, it's the first time ever that the session of the church has Requested that the people engage in prayer and fasting on behalf of the Christ Ridge Presbyterian Church. Now, it's not because we're in a panic, it's not because we're in a worry, it's not because we're anxious as to what the future holds. It's because the leadership of the church, as I mentioned last week in Sunday school, has looked around and seen blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing, and challenge upon challenge upon challenge upon challenge, with grief and sorrow and sadness and hurt and heartache. And as we've been confronted with the reality of those blessings held side by side with those great sorrows. I mean, some of us have cried more in the last six months than we've cried in, what, the previous five years? Ten years? It's raised a question of what to do. Now, providentially, I didn't map out this passage in advance. (laughs) This is one of those Sundays where you start reading them sermon passage I do at least on usually Monday or Tuesday and go, are you serious? This couldn't have been more perfect. I would never have picked Isaiah 7. I wouldn't have planned it, but what a passage. As it lays out, I think, a, a really a, a kind of a, a story arc that's important for us to consider in the midst of this season, in the midst of this month, as we go to the Lord and ask for His mercy, as we go to the Lord and ask for His protection, as we go to the Lord and ask for His grace. I think Isaiah 7 is important. It starts in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of… It starts in a part of history that most of us don't remember. This is not the pretty part of Israel's history. This is not the part that we like to look back on with joy and gladness. These are not the, the days that are taught in youth Sunday school with the flannel graph. These are the bad guys in bad days and in bad ways. Israel has gone rogue. The southern tribes, the Jerusalem, Judah, have been hit or miss. And really, by the time that verse 1 kind of happens historically, God's people are in a world of hurt. What's happened is Israel uh, and um, uh, the northern allies have kind of two nations have united together, Syria and Israel, to kind of come against Jerusalem and Judah. It's brother versus brother. It's civil war. And in fact, they've already tried to invade once. It hasn't worked. They've tried to get them to join, really, uh, an, uh, an alliance together. It hasn't worked. And you're looking at Jerusalem and Judah, this tiny little nation that's now surrounded on all sides with trouble. You have an alliance to the north that is comprised of uh, Syria. And Israel, you have a major powerhouse kind of next to them with Assyria, which is getting ready to wipe the map clean. You have another powerhouse to the south and then even further Egypt. They're basically at this point, that bit of fish floating in the middle of a gigantic shark feeding frenzy. This is a point in history where if you were going to look at Judah, you would say Jerusalem and Judah are in deep, deep trouble. In fact, actually, they're in such deep trouble kind of of geopolitically, you would probably have to say, really, there's no hope at all. They're in such deep, deep trouble. We're probably getting ready to watch the end of a nation certainly the end of a dynasty. David's last son really is on the throne, the last of his lineage. We're getting ready to watch the end of the people of God. This is how the Bible ends, you would think. It's a situation that's beyond hopeless. It's a situation that's beyond kind of resolution from Israel's side. In fact, actually, they've already, I mean, from Jerusalem's side, they've already uh, been attacked once by this same alliance, but weren't quite able to capture the city, largely because of the water um, aqueduct that we're going to see in a moment. But I think this is probably where the first part kind of for us to begin to think in categories for where we are or where you are in your own specific situation is this reoccurring theme that we show up all throughout the Bible, but really through the Old Testament history books. As we engage Old Testament history, we see this one kind of thread that's woven all the way through the Scriptures that the Lord often uses the faith of His people to accomplish their victory. Really, that's kind of introductory, kind of Israelite history 101, is that the Lord often uses the faith of His people to accomplish their victory. That's really what's happening here. You have this in verses 1 and 2, the problem, the setting, the backdrop is laid out. Oh, no, we have an alliance to the north of us. These two nations have united again, and in fact, they're getting ready to invade that's the end of verse one where they've come up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they couldn't get mount an attack. That's Isaiah's way of laying out that the, the armies are being amassed. They're getting ready to move to the south and they are intending to conquer Jerusalem and Judah. And God's people do not have the resources to actually win this battle. They are outnumbered. They are outmanned. They are outgunned. They are outmatched in every way. This would be a hopeless resolution. In fact, it's actually so bad that we know from other parts and chronicles and such that the kings were in process of trying to contact Egypt and trying to contact Assyria to see if they could find some sort of alliance to come help. They're literally thinking about making a deal with the devil. Until verse 3, the Lord intervenes. And friends, this is the point in the story where all of our hearts go, oh, look, it's hopeless. Oh, look, God's people are going to lose. Oh, look, they're going to be destroyed. Oh, look, this is the end of Israel. But God, and we all get excited because God intervenes. And if we were writing this, we would say, okay, but God intervenes. And what happens is he snaps his heavenly fingers and suddenly his divine power is administered and he destroys all of his enemies and all of ours. And the chapter ends in verse 3. God wins, and so do I. That's what I want. That's my story. That's the story I want to see worked out. And honestly, it's the story I want to see worked out every time I have any, any hurt or any heartache or any difficulty is I want God to snap His heavenly Father fingers and just immediately make it good. I don't like carrying the pain with me. I don't like carrying the weariness with me. I don't like carrying the hurt and the heartache. I don't like carrying the struggle with sin. I don't like resisting temptation. I don't like the difficulty of life. And I want him to just, and it's all good. Verse 3, the Lord intervenes. And does he intervene the way that we want to magically make it all instantaneously better? No. Instead, he sends Isaiah and his son to go meet the king. He tells them exactly where they should be to intercept the royal procession as he's out basically surveying the defenses of the city. And to give a very specific command in verse four. And I, I love this. I mean, wh- what counsel would you give to the king of a nation that's about to be wiped off the face of the map? Functionally, the nukes have already been launched, it's just a matter of time till they blow up your country. What's the command that God gives? Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. What? I mean, really? What? I mean, I'm sorry. Out of all the things that look at those, look at those words, look at those verbs. (laughs) Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint. None of those are action words that produce anything really beyond the king's heart. Functionally, we got nukes coming in. The army's getting ready to invade. The prophet of God goes to the king of his people, and you would expect him to say, hey, by the way, attack on the west. Hey, by the way, attack at night. Hey, by the way, if you do this, my angel will go out and fight the battle for you. If you do this... I'll make it better. And interestingly, what does he say? O oh, king, worry about your heart. Worry about your heart. O oh, king, great king, you who rules Jerusalem and Judah, worry about your heart that it would be a heart of faith. A heart that believes, a heart that's not filled with fear, knowing that if he gets invaded, what's happening to him? I mean, the text tells us they intend to come in and kill this king, so they can put the son of Tabeel in his place—somebody who would be basically a puppet that could be controlled. He knows his life is over the second the city is invaded. Don't be afraid. <laughs> Don't let your heart worry. Be at peace. Be at peace. Be at peace. Why do you need to be at peace? Well, it continues. Why should you be at peace? Because these two stumps, these two remnants, these two leftovers of some ridiculous enemy that's not even that powerful, they will be destroyed, and they will be destroyed by God himself. You have nothing to worry about, from the son of Remaliah. You have nothing to worry about from Razim. You have nothing to worry about from them trying to set up this Tabeel as the new king. You have nothing to worry about because your God is in charge. Now, Ahaz, we find out, as you've already paid attention, is not really a winner here. This is not the one where you're like, ooh, I should have be, I'd be like Ahaz. No, probably not, actually, right? But I think we do need to at least be kind of intellectually and emotionally honest to the man. We need to at least intellectually and emotionally be realistic with what God is telling him here. He's watching his life end, and God says, don't be afraid, I will take care of you. He's watching his world end, and God says, do not be afraid, I will take care of you. He's watching his country end, his kingship end, his city end. He's watching as best he would be able to tell the entire Old Testament end. And the Lord says, don't be afraid, I am in charge of it all. I love that the end of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you are not firm at all. Because what is Isaiah highlighting? What is God highlighting? What is God even saying to us today? <laughs> Intriguingly, one of the primary mechanisms that the Lord uses to protect us, and I don't understand why he does this, but he uses our faith as part of his miraculous healing, protecting process. It's interesting. Really and truly, what does God want? I mean, let's be, be truthful to the text. What does God want him to do in verses 1 through 9? What does God want the king to do? Absolutely nothing! literally nothing. He doesn't want him to act. He doesn't want him to fight. He doesn't want to do anything except get his heart right and to believe in God to trust that the God who has promised over and over and over again that the son of David would be seated on the throne forever, that that God can keep his promise, that the God who has promised that he will protect his people and has done so over and over and over again, that he can protect his people this time, that the God who has promised over and over and over again does not lie. To believe Believe. Now this is where I'm run risk of that great southern insult of switching from preaching to meddling. But dear friends, this truth is no less true today that in so many of the circumstances that God has placed us in, they have been designed to reveal our faith. We're so busy worrying about the nukes coming in. We're so busy worried about the armies that are invading. We're so busy worried that we forget to trust we forget to believe. We forget to rest in who this God is. And honestly, sometimes what ends up happening is, is we say, well, intellectually, I know that, Michael. I just got to work harder. Why? Notice what you're doing. you say, intellectually, I understand it. Let me push that aside and then let me go solve my own problems. And, friends, you don't do a very good job of it. I don't either. We love to kind of poke fun at Ahaz because here you have a king who God literally says, I will do it for you if you only believe in me. And then we immediately disbelieve that about myself and about yourself and about the problems that you have and the problems that I have and the problems that this church have. We immediately disbelieve. Now again, from preaching to Medlin, I think there's probably a significant reason why that is. And I suspect that for many of us, it's because we actually trust ourselves more than we trust the God of the Bible. Now, of course, nobody is uncouth enough to say that out loud, Nobody's tacky enough to be able to actually articulate that I have greater belief in my own competency than I have in the God of creation, his competency. But just because we don't say it doesn't mean we don't believe it. Just because I'm too much of a coward maybe perhaps to admit it out loud, but the reality is I show it day after day and night after night, and guess what? So do you. That you believe that you are better equipped to solve your problems than God himself is. And so you trust yourself. And the reason behind that, honestly, is because there is kind of, in the back of our minds, this kind of niggling little doubt that we don't actually believe that God is actually good at all. Or maybe he's a little good, but not really that good. Maybe He's just partially good, and He's trying to pester us or torture us. Maybe He's just a really awful God. And I love what actually happens in the text to kind of counteract that. I mean, you would think that it'd be pretty easy... This God who's done miracle after miracle after miracle, after miracle, after miracle after miracle, protecting these people, you think He would be easy to trust. But the thing I find the most intriguing out of all of this is that he even understands our limitations. He understands how scary it is to trust God. He understands how hard it is to believe him. And so, interestingly, here with Ahaz, he does something astonishing. He sends Isaiah back for a second speech in verse 10. And the Lord himself volunteers something for Ahaz. Understanding, like, Ahaz, this is a big ask to believe God when the invading armies come in. That's hard. The Lord's not blind to it. He knows our feeble frame. And so interestingly, in verse 11, he he does something shocking in offering something to Ahaz that is genuinely remarkable. Ahaz, as, as proof of my care... As proof of my promise, I volunteer to give you a sign as big as the sky or the grave itself. You just pick, and I'll show it. This is the voice of a tender God. This is the voice of a God who understands how scary it can be to expose your heart to him, to have to rely on him. This is the voice of a God who understands the man he's talking to will lose his life if this doesn't go the way that God has promised. This is the voice of a God who is tender and compassionate. The voice of a God who is kind, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the voice of a God who will describe himself as one who a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This is the God who heals and gives life. He understands. And so he offers freely to Ahaz something to make it just a little bit easier to believe. Something a little bit easier to see that this God is reliable, something to make it just a little bit less difficult. And Ahaz is an idiot. Rather than trusting the God who has said, trust me, rather than listening to the God who has said, listen to me, rather than watching the God who has said, watch me, he kind of puts his fingers in his ears and said, no, I'll do it my way. Thank you very much. Verse 12, rather than asking the Lord for a sign, which the Lord freely offered. Ahaz tries to pull some kind of like moral trump card, like he's playing some sort of like you know competitive game with God Himself. Nah, I'm not gonna put you to a test. That's probably a bad idea, even though God Himself just offered it. I I think God probably has a better idea of what's a good idea and bad idea. Ahaz is the fool. And says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to let you take care of me. I'm going to do it my way. Is the precursor to Frank Sinatra. It's going to be done my way. It's going to be mine. I'm going to believe what I want to believe. I'm going to act the way I want to act. I'm going to listen to what I want to listen to. It's going to be mine. And friends, this is an amazing kind of change in how we see our God. If you begin to think about his commands, some of them are very challenging for us. They require us to, to give away parts of our person that are honestly things that, that ask a lot from us. That are scary, That's it's not easy. To be fully devoted to someone outside of ourselves is to give them power over us to use the language of Paul, to become a slave, a bondservant of the Most High. It's volunteering to be controlled by and ruled by this God. And out of all the things to give up, I can't give up my freedom. I can't, I can't give up who I am. I, I can't give up my wants, my desires. I, I can't give them up. And it's intriguing. I think so much of us, so many of us, the reason why we cannot give that up is because we have this kind of in our brains and in our hearts idea that still I can do a better job than God because he doesn't actually love me that much. We forget that he's this God who actually volunteers a sign for a wicked man We forget He's the God that actually gives you regularly encouragements to believe and to grow. He regularly gives you a support network around you to believe and to grow. And it's interesting that uh, for His people now, we have the greatest sign we've ever seen in human history. The Spirit that dwells within. I know God is at work. I feel Him as He works within me. The Lord understands our doubts, understands our difficulties, and is still so wonderfully generous. Well, Ahaz botches it, honestly. Plays the fool, commits himself to his own actions, commits himself to his own plans, and you know, this is where you would expect, if you were kind of not paying attention, that the Lord would probably not receive this too terribly well. I mean, Ahaz has, in essence, told him that, you know, thanks but no thanks, I'll do it my way. And the thing that's so shocking, I think, is really the response that God gives in verses 14 through really 18. Your ESV has it divided 14 through 17, but the Lord comes back with an even greater promise. The Lord responds to him with an even greater promise to show his power in an even greater way. An idea that's going to be developed throughout the book, this, why it's called, Isaiah is called the fifth gospel, is now we begin to see the narrative of Christ beginning and being woven excuse me, throughout the entirety of the book that the Lord himself will show his power to redeem his people. Verse 14, you have the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, I think this is such an intriguing kind of contrast to where Ahaz has just been. (laughs) Ahaz is like, thanks, but no thanks, man. Like, you can leave. Like, meh. He's not looking for God with us, he's looking for God without. He's looking for the God who has left. He's looking for the God who maybe he could purchase some sort of solution from and then motor on. He's not looking for any form of relationship. And interestingly, what does God respond with? He responds with the promise of spiritual and relational intimacy that he would dwell in and among his people. that Ahaz's understanding is too small because what God brings to the table is that he loves his people so much he dwells with them. He loves his people so much that he dwells in them. He loves his people so much that he would ultimately, as part of this, send his son to perish for them It's intriguing that God responds uh, ultimately with greater promise explaining who he is to his people, that he does and has and will use his power to redeem for himself a people and perfect for himself a people and protect for himself a people and restore for himself a people. I love this, there's a bit of I think encouragement here But the Lord understands. And in fact, actually, he was using, or really giving Ahaz the opportunity to showcase faith. He was giving Ahaz the opportunity to grow. He was giving Ahaz to use his faith as part of the solution, but Ahaz botches it. And the Lord shows that he's still going to win, He's still going to love. He's still going to care for. He's still going to watch over and watch out for. He's still going to protect his people. He is the Lord, and he does not change. And this reminder, I think, is probably good for some of us in here. As some of us sit on circumstances that maybe look unwinnable, maybe look unchangeable, Maybe some of us sit on circumstances that look hopeless or heart-wrenching or just downright exhausting. Some of us look on circumstances that might possibly be improving, but we're not sure. It's still in flux. Some of us look on circumstances that are going to be great for the next two days, and then we're going to fast on Wednesday again and feel like we're dying all over. I suspect if you're in any of those categories, you need to be reminded of the God that we worship. The God that we worship interacts with his people in such a way, he loves us so profoundly with a love that was before the foundation of the world, that if you are his child, you cannot run from his promises. You can't outrun them. You can't get away from them. The devil can't destroy those promises. You can't get away from God's perfecting love. Now, I suspect that's actually not true for Ahaz at this point at least, but certainly true for us, that the Lord extends blessing and ultimately extends blessing in Jesus. Now, I know there are some of us in the room that learn the easy way, where well, that's all it takes, really. We like positive affirmation. That was how our, our parents parented us. All it took was the, the promise of a treat. Man, we'd do anything, right? Hey, you want some M&Ms as a little kid? Sure, we'll do whatever obedient thing is required. We love the positive affirmation. You give me positive affirmation, I'll do whatever it is, right? And for those of us that are in that category, this is where the chapter could probably end and probably where the sermon could end and we'd be all right, wouldn't we? Ah, the Lord loves me, I should love him more, and oh yeah, he's promised in Jesus. Oh, I feel so good about myself. Let's sing a good closing hymn and go home. I do, however, understand that that does not represent everybody in the room. Some of us actually don't learn through the school of affirmation. Some of us only learn through the school of hard knocks, Some of us only learn from the bottom looking up at the top. Some of us, honestly, only learn from rock bottom, and I think that's actually where the passage then goes afterwards. It's to say that while we cannot outrun the love of God, in fact, we could even go so far as to say we cannot outsin the love of God. While you have these sweet promises in verses uh, 13 through 13, 17, really 18 through the end of the chapter is a reminder that sin is really, really bad. And for those of us that, like I said, are committed to maybe learning things in a way that hurts, it doesn't, it doesn't take positive affirmation, it doesn't take a few M&Ms, it takes a, um, <laughs> getting our hand burnt on the stove or our finger shoved in the light socket. These are your verses. If you're in that category of that person that has that hard head, that has to learn with that hard heart. These are your verses. Because what God says in verse 18 is that sin still has consequences. Now, ultimately, those sins are paid for on the cross. All of God's people's sins, all of them are paid for on the cross. It's finished. It has been finished. It is finished. It will be finished. It is finished. Those sins are paid for on the cross. But the lessons from those sins are not yet fully accomplished. The instructive capability of those sins is not yet fully accomplished. And just as a parent, sometimes parent through positive affirmation and encouragement, and other times parent through spanking or grounding or other forms of discipline, that's what happens in verses 18 through 25, is the Lord lays out the negative aspect That when we don't trust him, when we do sin against him, when we do love our own way, when we do love our own heart, when we do love our own path, when we do love our own mind, when we do love our own truth, there are in this life consequences. Look at what the Lord says to Ahaz in verse 18. What's going to be your consequence, Ahaz? Is the Lord's going to whistle for, he's going to call the flies from Egypt and the bees of Assyria, he's going to call the enemies of God like, you're not going to trust me against the two lesser bozos, well, I'm going to call the big ones. The big dogs are going to come in and they're going to mess you up. And when they do all the things that you were actually afraid of that were never going to happen, well, they're going to happen now. Ahaz, you were afraid that your life was over. Well, it's going to be now. You're afraid that your kingdom was going to be over. Well, it's going to be now. You were afraid that the Davidic line was going to be over. Well, it's going to be over now. All of those things that you actually were afraid of, well, those are going to happen now. All of those fears that you were trying to avoid, all of those terrible, awful, horrible things that you were trying to avoid, well, you've accomplished them now. To say that sin has consequences would be an understatement from a passage like this. Verse 18, he calls in their political enemies to destroy them. Verse 19, it explains how comprehensive that victory is. In verse 20, it explains the social and societal kind of uh, emotional consequences of it. It's shameful. Those people that should have honor are so uh, absolutely dishonored that they, they lose their hair, they lose their beard, it's all cut away. It's a weird thing to preach two weeks after I shave my beard, but okay, that's fine. Verse 21, 22, there's starvation in the land. They've lost their financial resources Verse 23, the land itself is so destroyed that all of the areas that they've cultivated are just overrun with briars. So that all of the hard work that was spent making the land usable to grow things, it's now no longer usable for anything. And what you're looking at is, uh, verse 23, thousands of shekels of land would, worth of land is, is just worthless. The sin is destructive. Now, I'm gonna be candid with you. This is not a point I like to preach. I like to preach the happy promises. You can figure out which kind of person I am, actually, from that sermon. You can figure out which way I'm prone to live and which way I'm prone to learn. Do I learn from the M&Ms or do I learn from the spankings? You can figure out my temperament probably fairly easily. But for those of us that perhaps learn the hard way, you need to be reminded that it's there. Well, that's where the chapter ends. That's horrible, isn't it? Great sermon, Michael. Thanks. I feel inspired. Well, I do actually, I want to jump back just one point. Maybe where the whole part started. The part that if you read your footnotes or love and being in your kind of study Bible, what the Lord began with, really, which was a promise in verse three. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet the king, you and your son. Now, all of this chapter are word plays on their names, right? Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord dwells with his people. Isaiah, who is another variation of God living, dwelling, and being with his people. But now bringing his son, Sheer-Jeshub, which is, as you can see in your footnote, a remnant shall return. From the very beginning, God has been explaining to the king that God will not be defeated. His love is assured. No matter the school of hard knocks that you choose to go through, you're just going to make yourself miserable because you can't make him miserable because he's going to win. His remnant is permanently assured because they are his. The Lord loves his people. I'll end maybe with just one brief application, though I've run a touch long. We've entered into a unique season of time as a church with a unique request from the session to ask for a unique action set. Maybe, probably not a unique sermon, but an intentionally focused application. That maybe this month, we could together, as the people of God, together labor to believe what God himself has said. To actually believe him. Now, for some of us, that means we honestly need to stop and think about it because we don't actually even think about his word at all his promises never impact our life we go day to day being very successful never even contemplating his promises and if you're in that category you need to stop and think because you can't believe a god that you never even think about some of us in here room this size this many people i know there's more than one are honestly actively running from him actively trying to get away from the God of love. And if you're in that camp this month, you need to repent, friends. You need to seek the Lord and confess your sins for He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And if you honestly assess yourself and find that, hey, the Lord's been kind to me. I struggle in a multitude of areas, but maybe this isn't one that defines me. Then, friends, pour out your, your prayers, pour out your heart on behalf of your brothers and sisters who struggle to believe that God is good and he loves his people. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Would you be so kind Would you be so generous? Would you be so tender as to heal our hearts? Lord, we know our hearts are more broken than we can really understand. But the bits that we do understand create so much shame, so much discouragement, so much weariness. That for many of us, it's hard to even talk about it publicly, at all, privately, at all. Because we get overwhelmed. We get so easily overwhelmed. And Lord, maybe our best prayer at this point is that you would help us in our unbelief. Oh God, help us in our unbelief. For Christ's sake, amen.